Book Eight, Part One of the Republic by Plato. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. And so, Glaucon, we have arrived at the conclusion that in the perfect state, wives and children are to be in common, and that all education and pursuits of war and peace are also to be common, and the best philosophers and the bravest warriors are to be their kings. That, replied Glaucon, has been acknowledged. Yes, I said, and we have further acknowledged that the governors, when appointed themselves, will take their soldiers and place them in houses such as we were describing, which are common to all and contain nothing private or individual, and about their property you remember what we agreed? Yes, I remember that no one was to have any of the original possessions of mankind. They were to be warrior athletes and guardians, receiving from the other citizens, in lieu of annual payment, only their maintenance, and they were to take care of themselves and of the whole state. True, I said, and now that this division of our task is concluded, let us find the point at which we digressed, that we may return to the old path. There is no difficulty in returning. You implied, then as now, that you had finished the description of the state. You said that such a state was good, and that the man was good who answered to it, although, as now appears, you had more excellent things to relate both of state and man. And you said further that if this was the true form, then the others were false, and of the false forms you said, as I remember, that there were four principal ones, and that their defects, and the defects of the individuals corresponding to them, were worth examining. When we had seen all the individuals, and finally agreed as to who was the best and who was the worst of them, we were to consider whether the best was not also the happiest, and the worst the most miserable. I asked you what were the four forms of government of which you spoke, and then Polymarchus and Ademantus put in their word, and you began again, and have found your way to the point at which we have now arrived. Your recollection, I said, is most exact then, like a wrestler, he replied, you must put yourself again in the same position, and let me ask the same questions, and do you give me the same answer which you were about to give me then? Yes, if I can, I will, I said. I shall particularly wish to hear what were the four constitutions of which you were speaking. That question, I said, is easily answered. The four governments of which I spoke, so far as they have distinct names, are first those of Crete and Sparta, which are generally applauded. What is termed oligarchy comes next. This is not equally approved, and is a form of government which teems with evils. Thirdly, democracy, which naturally follows oligarchy, although very different. And lastly comes tyranny, great and famous, which differs from them all, and is the fourth and worst disorder of a state. I do not know. Do you— of any other constitution which can be said to have a distinct character. There are lordships and principalities which are bought and sold, and some other intermediate forms of government. But these are nondescripts, and may be found equally among Hellenes and among barbarians. Yes, he replied, we certainly hear of many curious forms of government which exist among them. Do you know, I said, that governments vary as the dispositions of men vary? and that there must be as many of the one as there are of the other? 
for we cannot suppose that states are made of oak and rock, and not out of the human natures which are in them, and which in a figure turn the scale and draw other things after them. Yes, he said, the states are as the men are, they grow out of human characters. Then if the constitutions of states are five, the dispositions of individual minds will also be five. Certainly. Him who answers to aristocracy, and whom we rightly call just and good, we have already described. We have. Then let us now proceed to describe the inferior sort of natures, being the contentious and ambitious, who answer to the Spartan polity, also the oligarchical, democratical, and tyrannical. Let us place the most just by the side of the most unjust, and when we see them, we shall be able to compare the relative happiness or unhappiness of him who leads a life of pure justice or pure injustice. The inquiry will then be completed, and we shall know whether we ought to pursue injustice, as Thrasymachus advises, or in accordance with the conclusions of the argument to preferred justice. Certainly, he replied, we must do as you say. Shall we follow our old plan, which we adopted with a view to clearness, of taking the state first, and then proceeding to the individual, and begin with the government of honour? I know of no name for such a government other than timocracy, and perhaps timarchy. We will compare with this the like character in the individual, and after that consider oligarchy and the oligarchical man, and then again we will turn our attention to democracy and the democratical man, and lastly we will go and view the city of tyranny, and once more take a look into the tyrant's soul, and try to arrive at a satisfactory decision. That way of viewing and judging of the matter will be very suitable. First, then, I said, let us inquire how timocracy, the government of honour, arises out of aristocracy, the government of the best. Clearly, all political changes originate in divisions of the actual governing power. A government which is united, however small, cannot be moved. Very true, he said. In what way, then, will our city be moved, and in what manner will the two classes of auxiliaries and rulers disagree among themselves, or with one another? Shall we, after the manner of Homer, pray the muses to tell us how discord first arose? Shall we imagine them in solemn mockery, to play and jest with us as if we were children, and to address us in a lofty, tragic vein, making believe to be in earnest? How would they address us? After this manner. A city which is thus constituted can hardly be shaken, but seeing that everything which has a beginning also has an end, even a constitution such as yours will not last for ever, but will in time be dissolved. And this is the dissolution. In plants that grow in the earth, as well as in animals that move on the earth's surface, fertility and sterility of soul and body occur when the circumferences of the circles of each are completed, which in short-lived existences pass over a short space, and in long-lived ones over a long space. But to the knowledge of human fecundity and sterility all the wisdom and education of your rulers will not attain. The laws which regulate them will not be discovered by an intelligence which is alloyed with sense, but will escape them, and they will bring children into the world when they ought not. Now, that which is of divine birth has a period which is contained in a perfect number. 
that the period of human birth is comprehended in a number in which first increments by involution and evolution, obtaining three intervals and four terms of like and unlike, waxing and waning numbers, make all the terms commensurable and agreeable to one another. The base of these, with a third added when combined with five and raised to the third power, furnishes two harmonies, the first a square, which is a hundred times as great, and the other a figure having one side equal to the former, but oblong, consisting of a hundred numbers squared upon rational diameters of a square, the side of which is five, each of them being less by one, or less by two perfect squares of irrational diameters, and a hundred cubes of three. Now, this number represents a geometrical figure which has control over the good and evil of births, for when your guardians are ignorant of the law of births, and unite bride and bridegroom out of season, the children will not be goodly or fortunate. And though only the best of them will be appointed by their predecessors, still they will be unworthy to hold their father's places, and when they come into power as guardians, they will soon be found to fail in taking care of us, the muses, first by undervaluing music, which neglect will soon extend to gymnastic, and hence the young men of your state will be less cultivated. In the succeeding generation rulers will be appointed who have lost the guardian power of testing the metal of their different races, which, like Hesiod's, are of gold and silver and brass and iron, and so iron will be mingled with silver and brass with gold, and hence there will arise dissimilarity and inequality and irregularity, which always and in all places are causes of hatred and war. This the muses affirm to be the stock from which discord has sprung, wherever arising, and this is their answer to us. Yes, and we may assume that they answered truly. Why, yes, I said, of course they answered truly. How can the muses speak falsely? And what do the muses say next? When discord arose, then the two races were drawn different ways, the iron and brass fell to acquiring money, and land, and houses, and gold and silver, but the gold and silver races, not wanting money, but having the true riches in their own nature, inclined towards virtue and the ancient order of things. There was a battle between them, and at last they agreed to distribute their land and houses among individual owners, and they enslaved their friends and maintainers whom they had formerly protected in the condition of free men, and made of them subjects and servants, and they themselves were engaged in war and in keeping a watch against them. I believe that you have rightly conceived the origin of the change. And the new government which thus arises will be of a form intermediate between oligarchy and aristocracy? Very true. Such will be the change, and after the change has been made, how will they proceed? Clearly the new state, being in a mean between oligarchy and the perfect state, will partly follow one and partly the other, and will also have some peculiarities. True, he said. In the honour given to rulers, in the abstinence of the warrior class from agriculture, handicrafts, and trade in general, in the institution of common meals, and in the attention paid to gymnastics and military training. In all these respects this state will resemble the former. True. But in the fear of admitting philosophers to power, because they are no longer to be had simple and earnest, but are made up of mixed elements, and in turning from them to passionate and less complex characters, who are by nature fitted for war rather than peace, 
and in the value set by them upon military stratagems and contrivances and in waging of everlasting wars this state will be for the most part peculiar yes yes i said and men of this stamp will be covetous of money like those who live in oligarchies they will have a fierce secret longing after gold and silver which they will hoard in dark places having magazines and treasuries of their own for the deposit and concealment of them also castles which are just nests for their eggs and in which they will spend large sums on their wives or on any others whom they please that is most true he said and they are miserly because they have no means of openly acquiring the money which they prize they will spend that which is another man's on the gratification of their desires stealing their pleasures and running away like children from the law their father they have been schooled not by gentle influences but by force for they have neglected her who is the true muse the companion of reason and philosophy and have honoured gymnastic more than music undoubtedly he said the form of government which you describe is a mixture of good and evil why there is a mixture i said but one thing and one thing only is predominantly seen the spirit of contention and ambition and these are due to the prevalence of the passionate or spirited element assuredly he said such is the origin and such the character of this state which has been described in outline only the more perfect execution was not required, for a sketch is enough to show the type of the most perfectly just and the most perfectly unjust, and to go through all the states and all the characters of men, omitting none of them, would be an interminable labor. Very true, he replied. Now, what man answers to this form of government? How did he come into being, and what is he like? I think— said adimantus that in the spirit of contention which characterizes him he is not unlike our friend glaucon perhaps i said he may be like him in that one point but there are other respects in which he is very different in what respects he should have more of self-assertion and be less cultivated and yet a friend of culture and he should be a good listener but no speaker such a person is apt to be rough with slaves unlike the educated man, who is too proud for that, and he will also be courteous to freemen and remarkably obedient to authority. He is a lover of power and a lover of honour, claiming to be a ruler not because he is eloquent or on any ground of that sort, but because he is a soldier and has performed feats of arms. He is also a lover of gymnastic exercises and of the chase. Yes, that is the type of character which answers to democracy such an one will despise riches only when he is young but as he gets older he will be more and more attracted to them because he has a piece of the avaricious nature in him and he is not single-minded towards virtue having lost his best guardian who was that said adimantus philosophy i said tempered with music who comes and takes up her abode in the man and is the only saviour of his virtue throughout life good he said such i said is the timocratical youth and he is like the timocratical state exactly his origin is as follows he is often the young son of a brave father who dwells in an ill-governed city of which he declines the honours and offices and will not go to law or exert himself in any way but is ready to waive his rights in order that he may escape trouble and how does the son come into being 
The character of the son begins to develop when he hears his mother complaining that her husband has no place in the government, of which the consequence is that she has no precedence among other women. Further, when she sees her husband not very eager about money, and instead of battling and railing in the law courts or assembly, taking whatever happens to him quietly, and when she observes that his thoughts always centre in himself, while he treats her with very considerable indifference, she is annoyed, and says to her son that his father is only half a man and far too easy-going, adding all the other complaints about her own ill-treatment which women are so fond of rehearsing. Yes, said Adamantus, they give us plenty of them, and their complaints are so like themselves. And you know, I said, that the old servants also, who are supposed to be attached to the family, from time to time talk privately in the same strain to the son, and if they see any one who owes money to his father, or is wronging him in any way, and he fails to prosecute them, they tell the youth that when he grows up he must retaliate upon people of this sort, and be more of a man than his father. He has only to walk abroad, and he hears and sees the same sort of thing. Those who do their own business in the city are called simpletons, and held in no esteem, while the busybodies are honoured and applauded. The result is that the young man, hearing and seeing all these things, hearing, too, the words of his father, and having a nearer view of his way of life, and making comparisons of him and others, is drawn opposite ways, while his father is watering and nourishing the rational principle of his soul, the others are encouraging the passionate and the appetitive, and he, being not originally of a bad nature, but having kept bad company, is at last brought by their joint influence to a middle point, and gives up the kingdom which is within him to the middle principle of contentiousness and passion, and becomes arrogant and ambitious. You seem to have described his origin perfectly. Then we have now, I said, the second form of government and the second type of character we have. Next, let us look at another man who, as Aeschylus says, is set over against another state, or, rather, as our plan requires, begin with a state, by all means. I believe that oligarchy follows next in order. And what manner of government do you term oligarchy? A government resting on a valuation of property, in which the rich have power and the poor man is deprived of it. I understand, he replied. Ought I not to begin by describing how the change from democracy to oligarchy arises? Yes. Well, I said, no eyes are required in order to see how the one passes into the other. Wow! The accumulation of gold in the treasury of private individuals is the ruin of democracy. They invent illegal modes of expenditure, for what do they or their wives care about the law? Yes, indeed. And then one, seeing another grow rich, seeks to rival him, and thus the great mass of the citizens become lovers of money. Likely enough. And so they grow richer and richer, and the more they think of making a fortune, the less they think of virtue. For when riches and virtue are placed together in the scales of the balance, the one always rises as the other falls. True and in proportion as riches and rich men are honoured in the state, virtue and the virtuous are dishonoured, clearly. And what is honoured is cultivated, and that which has no honour is neglected. That is obvious. And so, at last, instead of loving contention and glory, men become lovers of trade and money. 
They honor and look up to the rich man, and make a ruler of him, and dishonor the poor man. They do so. They next proceed to make a law which fixes a sum of money as the qualification of citizenship. The sum is higher in one place and lower in another, as the oligarchy is more or less exclusive, and they allow no one whose property falls below the amount fixed to have any share in the government. These changes in the Constitution they effect by force of arms, if intimidation has not already done their work. Very true. And this, speaking generally, is the way in which oligarchy is established. Yes, he said, but what are the characteristics of this form of government, and what are the defects of which we are speaking? First of all, I said, consider the nature of the qualification. Just think what would happen if pilots were to be chosen according to their property, and a poor man were refused permission to steer, even though he were a better pilot. You mean that they would shipwreck? Yes, and is not this true of the government of anything? I should imagine so. Except a city, or would you include a city? Nay, he said, the case of a city is the strongest of all, inasmuch as the rule of a city is the greatest and most difficult of all. This, then, will be the first great defect of oligarchy, clearly. And here is another defect which is quite as bad. What defect? The inevitable division. Such a state as not one, but two states, the one of poor, the other of rich men, and they are living on the same spot, and always conspiring against one another. That surely is at least as bad. Another discreditable feature is that, for a like reason, they are incapable of carrying on any war. Either they arm the multitude, and then they are more afraid of them than of the enemy, or if they do not call them out in the hour of battle, they are oligarchs indeed, few to fight as there are few to rule, and at the same time their fondness for money makes them unwilling to pay taxes. How discreditable! And, as we said before, under such a constitution the same persons have too many callings. They are husbandmen, tradesmen, warriors, all in one. Does that look well? Anything but well. There is another evil which is perhaps the greatest of all, and to which this state first begins to be liable. What evil? A man may sell all that he has, and another may acquire his property. Yet after the sale he may dwell in the city of which he is no longer a part, being neither trader, nor artisan, nor horseman, nor hoplite, but only a poor, helpless creature. Yes, that is an evil which also first begins in this state. The evil is certainly not prevented there, for oligarchies have both the extremes of great wealth and utter poverty. True. But think again. In his wealthy days, while he was spending his money, was a man of this sort a whit more good to the state for the purposes of citizenship? Or did he only seem to be a member of the ruling body, although in truth he was neither ruler nor subject, but just a spendthrift? As you say, he seemed to be a ruler, but was only a spendthrift. May we not say that this is the drone in the house who is like the drone in the honeycomb, and that the one is the plague of the city as the other is of the hive? Just so, Socrates. And God has made the flying drones at Amantis all without stings, whereas of the walking drones he has made some without stings, but others have dreadful stings. Of the stingless class are those who in their old age end as paupers. Of the stingers come all the criminal class, as they are termed. Most true, he said. Clearly, then, 
Whenever you see paupers in a state, somewhere in that neighborhood there are hidden away thieves, and cut-purses, and robbers of temples, and all sorts of malefactors. Clearly. Well, I said, and in oligarchical states do you not find paupers? Yes, he said, nearly everybody is a pauper who is not a ruler. And may we be so bold as to affirm that there are also many criminals to be found in them, rogues who have stings, and whom the authorities are careful to restrain by force? Certainly, we may be so bold. The existence of such persons is to be attributed to want of education, ill-training, and an evil constitution of the state? True. Such, then, is the form, and such are the evils of oligarchy, and there may be many other evils. Very likely. Then oligarchy, or the form of government in which the rulers are elected for their wealth, may now be dismissed. Let us next proceed to consider the nature and origin of the individual who answers to this state. By all means. Does not the timocratical man change into the oligarchical on this wise? How? A time arrived when the representative of democracy has a son. At first he begins by emulating his father and walking in his footsteps, but presently he sees him of a sudden foundering against the state, as upon a sunken reef, and he and all that he has is lost. He may have been a general or some other high officer who was brought to trial under a prejudice raised by informers, and either put to death, or exiled, or deprived of the privileges of a citizen, and all his property taken from him. Nothing more likely. And the son has seen and known all this. He is a ruined man, and his fear has taught him to knock ambition and passion head foremost from his bosom's throne. Humbled by poverty, he takes to money-making, and by mean and miserly savings and hard work gets a fortune together. Is not such an one likely to seat the concupiscent and covetous element on the vacant throne, and to suffer it to play the great king within him, girt with tiara and chain and scimitar? Most true, he replied. And when he has made reason and spirit sit down on the ground obediently on either side of their sovereign, and taught them to know their place, he compels the one to think only of how lesser sums may be turned into larger ones, and will not allow the other to worship and admire anything but riches and rich men, or to be ambitious of anything so much as the acquisition of wealth and the means of acquiring it. Of all changes, he said, there is none so speedy or so sure as the conversion of the ambitious youth into the avaricious one. And the avaricious, I said, is the oligarchical youth? Yes, he said, at any rate the individual out of whom he came is like the state out of which oligarchy came. Let us then consider whether there is any likeness between them. Very good. First, then, they resemble one another in the value which they set upon wealth. Certainly. Also in their penurious, laborious character, the individual only satisfies his necessary appetites and confines his expenditure to them, his other desires he subdues, under the idea that they are unprofitable. True. He is a shabby fellow, who saves something out of everything, and makes a purse for himself, and this is the sort of man whom the vulgar applaud. Is he not a true image of the state which he represents? He appears to me to be so. At any rate, money is highly valued by him, as well as by the state. You see that he is not a man of cultivation, I said. I imagine not, he said. Had he been educated, 
he would never have made a blind god director of his course, or given him chief honor. Excellent, I said. Yet, consider, must we not further admit that owing to this vast want of cultivation, there will be found in him drone-like desires as of pauper and rogue, which are forcibly kept down by his general habit of life? True. Do you know where you will have to look if you want to discover his rogueries? Where must I look? You should see him where he has some great opportunity of acting dishonestly, as in the guardianship of an orphan. Aye. It will be clear enough, then, that in his ordinary dealings which give him a reputation for honesty, he coerces his bad passions by an enforced virtue, not making them see that they are wrong, or taming them by reason, but by necessity and fear constraining them, and because he trembles for his possessions. To be sure. Yes, indeed, my dear friend. But you will find that the natural desires of the drone commonly exist in him all the same, whenever he has to spend what is not his own. Yes, and they will be strong in him, too. That man, then, will be at war with himself. He will be two men, not one. But, in general, his better desires will be found to prevail over his inferior ones. True. For these reasons such an one will be more respectable than most people. Yet the true virtue of a unanimous and harmonious soul will flee far away and never come near him. I should expect so. And surely the miser individually will be an ignoble competitor in the state for any prize of victory or any object of honorable ambition. He will not spend his money in the contest for glory, so afraid is he of awakening his expensive appetites and inviting them to help and join in the struggle. In true oligarchical fashion he fights with a small part only of his resources, and the result commonly is that he loses the prize and saves his money. Very true. Can we no longer doubt, then, that the miser and the money-maker answers to the oligarchical state? There can be no doubt. Next comes democracy. Of this the origin and the nature have still to be considered by us, and then we will inquire into the ways of the democratic man and bring him up for judgment. That, he said, is our method. Well, I said, and how does the change from oligarchy into democracy arise? Is it not on this wise? The good at which such a state aims is to become as rich as possible, a desire which is insatiable. What then? The rulers, being aware that their power rests upon their wealth, refuse to curtail by law the extravagance of the spendthrift youth, because they gain by their ruin. They take interest from them, and buy up their estates, and thus increase their own wealth and importance, to be sure. There can be no doubt that the love of wealth and the spirit of moderation cannot exist together in citizens of the same state to any considerable extent one or the other will be disregarded. That is tolerably clear. And in oligarchical states, from the general spread of carelessness and extravagance, men of good family have often been reduced to beggary. Yes, often. And still they remain in the city. There they are, ready to sting and fully armed, and some of them owe money, some have forfeited their citizenship. A third class are in both predicaments, and they hate and conspire against those who have got their property, and against everybody else, and are eager for revolution. That is true. On the other hand, 
the men of business, stooping as they walk, and pretending not even to see those whom they have already ruined, insert their sting, that is, their money, into some one else who is not on his guard against them, and recover the apparent sum many times over multiplied into a family of children, and so they make drone and pauper to abound in the state. Yes, he said, there are plenty of them, that is certain. The evil blazes up like a fire, and they will not extinguish it, either by restricting a man's use of his own property, or by any other remedy. What other? One which is the next best, and has the advantage of compelling the citizens to look to their characters. Let there be a general rule that every one shall enter into voluntary contracts at his own risk, and there will be less of this scandalous money-making, and the evils of which we were speaking will be greatly lessened in the state. Yes, they will be greatly lessened. At present, the governors, induced by the motives which I have named, treat their subjects badly, while they and their adherents, especially the young men of the governing class, are habituated to lead a life of luxury and idleness, both of body and mind. They do nothing, and are incapable of resisting either pleasure or pain. Very true. They themselves care only for making money, and are as indifferent as the pauper to the cultivation of virtue. Yes, quite as indifferent. Such is the state of affairs which prevails among them, and often rulers and their subjects may come in one another's way, whether on a journey or on some other occasion of meeting, on a pilgrimage or a march, as fellow-soldiers or fellow-sailors. Aye, and they may observe the behaviour of each other in the very moment of danger, for where danger is, there is no fear that the poor will be despised by the rich, and, very likely, the wiry, sunburnt poor man will be placed in battle at the side of a wealthy one, who has never spoiled his complexion, and has plenty of superfluous flesh. When he sees such a one puffing, and at his wit's end, how can he avoid drawing the conclusion that men like him are only rich because no one has the courage to despoil them? And when they meet in private, Will not people be saying to one another, Our warriors are not good for much? Yes, he said, I am quite aware that this is their way of talking. And, as in a body which is diseased, the addition of a touch from without may bring on illness, and sometimes, even when there is no external provocation, a commotion may arise within. In the same way, wherever there is weakness in the state, there is also likely to be illness, of which the occasion may be very slight the one party introducing from without their oligarchical, the other their democratical allies, and then the state falls sick, and is at war with herself, and may be at times distracted, even when there is no external cause. Yes, surely. And then democracy comes into being after the poor have conquered their opponents, slaughtering some and banishing some, while to the remainder they give an equal share of freedom and power and this is the form of government in which the magistrates are commonly elected by lot. Yes, he said, that is the nature of democracy, whether the revolution had been effected by arms, or whether fear has caused the opposite party to withdraw. And now what is their manner of life, and what sort of a government have they? For as the government is, such will be the man. Clearly, he said. In the first place, are they not free? and is not the city full of freedom and frankness, a man may say and do what he likes? "'Tis said so,' he replied. 
and where freedom is, the individual is clearly able to order for himself his own life as he pleases? Clearly. Then in this kind of state there will be the greatest variety of human natures? There will. This, then, seems likely to be the fairest of states, being like an embroidered robe which is spangled with every sort of flower. And just as women and children think a variety of colours to be of all things most charming, so there are many men to whom this state, which is spangled with the manners and characteristics of mankind, will appear to be the fairest of states. Yes. Yes, my good sir, and there will be no better in which to look for a government. Why? Because of the liberty which reigns there. They have a complete assortment of constitutions, and he who has a mind to establish a state, as we have been doing, must go to a democracy as he would to a bazaar at which they sell them, and pick out the one that suits him. Then, when he has made his choice, he may found his state. He will be sure to have patterns enough. And there being no necessity, I said, for you to govern in this state, even if you have the capacity, or to be governed, unless you like, or go to war when the rest go to war, or be at peace when the others are at peace, unless you are so disposed, there being no necessity also, because some law forbids you to hold office or to be a die-cast, that you should not hold office or be a die-cast, if you have a fancy. Is not this a way of life which for the moment is supremely delightful? For the moment, yes. And is not their humanity to the condemned, in some cases, quite charming? Have you not observed how, in a democracy, many persons, although they have been sentenced to death or exile, just say where they are and walk about the world? The gentleman parades like a hero, and nobody sees or cares. Yes, he replied, many and many a one. See, too, I said, the forgiving spirit of democracy, and the don't care about trifles, and the disregard which she shows of all the fine principles which we solemnly laid down at the foundation of the city, as when we said that, except in the case of some rarely gifted nature, there never will be a good man who has not from his childhood been used to play amid things of beauty and make of them a joy and a study. How grandly does she trample all these fine notions of ours under her feet, never giving a thought to the pursuits which make a statesman, and promoting to honour any one who professes to be the people's friend. Yes, she is of a noble spirit. These and other kindred characteristics are proper to democracy, which is a charming form of government, full of variety and disorder, and dispensing a sort of equality to equals and unequals alike. We know her well. Consider now, I said, what manner of man the individual is or rather consider, as in the case of the state, how he comes into being. Very good, he said. Is not this the way? He is the son of the miserly and oligarchical father who has trained him in his own habits? Exactly. And, like his father, he keeps under, by force, the pleasures which are of the spending and not of the getting sort, being those which are called unnecessary. Obviously. Would you like, for the sake of clearness, to distinguish which are the necessary and which are the unnecessary pleasures? I should. End of Book Eight, Part One